you're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Well, you know, a little while ago, uh, our little Mia was over, and, well, their mom and, her mom and dad were too, but what does that matter? Uh, she was there at my house, so... But she and I were on the couch, and uh, she was grabbing for the fireplace remote. And uh, I put my hand out, and I said, Tata. And Aaron and Becca kind of went, what? What's Tata? We've never heard of that before. Have you heard of Tata before? Tata. Yeah? See, guys? Yeah. Anyway, they hadn't heard of that before. Aaron should have heard about it because we used it on him and his brother and sister when they were Mia's age. But as they got older, of course, we didn't. It sounded kind of childish, and we didn't think that they would like that. But, and, and, but maybe you haven't heard of Tata. For, for us, Tata was, uh, when the kids were little at least, a way for us to use a word other than no in order to stop them from doing something, especially when, when the word no is oftentimes more overused when they get older, and we probably overused it a lot when they were older, that word no. But Tata, when they were little, meant I'll take that because you're really not supposed to be playing with that. Now, we use no a little bit later on as they get older for a number of different reasons. We usually tell kids no when it means stop or later, right? Aaron heard no a lot because he would constantly push his brother and run by him at a frantic pace and give him a good smack, and so he got a, he got a no for that. He'd also punch kids in the nursery. See, so you're getting payback now, buddy, for this slideshow this morning. He'd also punch kids in the nursery, and uh, he'd get a no for that. Uh, pastor's kids, hey? But sometimes if a kid gets, says, give me a cookie, we say no because we're trying to get them to ask more politely, right? So in that way, no is a corrective word. Now if a kid says, may I please have a cookie, we might still say no because we don't want them to spoil their supper, right? Or maybe because they've already eaten three granola bars, a piece of cake, and whatever else is around the house, and we don't want them eating that much sugar. So in that case, it's more of a directive word. How much no forms our thinking and our behavior as we grow older, I don't think anyone will ever know. All kinds of supposed child-rearing experts have all kinds of theories, but I don't think we'll ever really know. Now, it may be because I'm getting older now, but I think more kids need to hear no more than they do from their parents. And parents need to stick to that no. I mean, just stand in the grocery store checkout line one day and and see the fights that go on with parents. But there comes a time when the person telling us no most in our life is actually ourselves. Sometimes we might want a cookie, and we don't need a cookie, we don't need anybody's permission, but we hear a no because it's our internal way of saying, it's not good for you, you don't need one. So in that sense, it's a restraining word for us. But attached to that no, you may also hear something else. You might actually also hear, no, you don't need a cookie because you're fat. You ever hear that in your head? There are times when we wonder if we should go for an opportunity that presents itself and we tell ourselves no. And attached to that no might be some other words like no because you don't deserve it or you'll just fail at it anyway. You can even bring that into our relationship with God. Who of us hasn't wondered if God is pleased with us from time to time? And internally we hear, no. 
He's not. I mean, look at you. How could he be? No can be a helpful way for us to stop pigging out on cookies or other things that aren't good for us. But no can also be paralyzing and destructive. Especially when it impacts how we see ourselves negatively. Well, today we're going to conclude our Greater Than series. If you remember, Jesus is greater than your capacity. He's greater than your labels. He's greater than the impossible before you. And today we'll learn that Jesus is also greater than the no's you tell yourself. Obviously, my hope through this series has been to magnify Jesus. Because he's worth it, right? So much in your heart and mind, though, that you will approach life like John the Baptist did. Remember when he gave that affirmation and that conviction of his own heart in John chapter 3, verse 30, when he said, Jesus must become greater, and I must become less. Can we say that out loud together? Jesus must become greater, and I must become less. Why don't you point to Jesus when you say that? Jesus must become greater, and I must become less. And it's so true. Now, sometimes... I hear people saying, using the words become less as a way to talk about themselves as unimportant or worse, worthless. That's not what this is about. And that's not what the Christian message is about. I've I've even heard people pray something like, oh Lord, we are nothing but worthless sinners. We need your forgiveness. Friends, what you believe And what you say about yourself really does matter. It's not just pop psychology. What you believe and say about yourself needs to be biblical and it needs to be consistent with how God sees you and what he says about you. John chapter 3. Let's turn there, shall we? Let's conclude our series in this chapter again. John chapter 3, verse 30 to 32. John, not John the Baptist, the disciple John, writes this gospel. But this is John speaking, the Baptist. Jesus must become greater, and I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. Who? That's Jesus, right? The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. John the Baptist is probably thinking of himself there. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Well, obviously not no one, because we're here, right? We've accepted his testimony. But in those days, relative to the size of the people of Israel, very few had accepted Jesus' testimony about himself. If you back up a couple of chapters to John chapter 1, verse 10, John says this, He was in the world, and though he was in the world, And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, Israel, but his own did not receive him. Jesus came testifying about the Father and his plan of salvation to the world, but Israel, for the most part, rejected him. And we know the end of the story, right? Eventually, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, devout Jewish men who should have recognized him, yet it was them who had Jesus crucified in cahoots with the Roman enemies of Israel. Verse 33, whoever has accepted it 
sorry, John 3, 33. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent, that is Jesus, speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. God gave Jesus the Spirit without limit. In a Jewish rabbinical commentary on the book of Leviticus, Leviticus Rabbah, dating back to about 1000 AD, the commentators claim that the Holy Spirit was given to the prophet or rested on the prophets in measure. But now here in verse 34, John the Baptist says, he contrasts his own prophetic mantle with the mantle of Jesus saying, but on Jesus the Spirit is given without measure without limit. In this way, too, John understood that Jesus must become greater and he, God's prophet, must become, or rather, is less than Jesus. And and the reason this is true is because Jesus is from above and is above all. And as the Son of God, the Father loves the Son uniquely and has placed everything in his hands. So he is greater than all. John says that. John says he is greater than all and everyone greater than everything. And and you know what? All that prefaces something here in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. That, my friends, really is the premise of the Gospel of John. In fact, it's really the premise of the entire Bible. Let me read it again, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So, before we go any further, let me ask you. Let me ask you online. Do you believe in the Son today? Or do you reject the Son? It's either or. It's not an in-between kind of a thing. The result of belief in the Son is eternal life. The result of rejecting the Son is God's wrath. This is the premise of the Bible's message, which is really Jesus' message. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. But you know, I've seen times where we've gotten that message a little wrong. And when I mean a little wrong, it really makes it a lot wrong. Trying to tell people about the gospel, we've sometimes gotten it wrong. The message we try to get people to say yes to is this. If you pray the prayer and ask God to forgive you your sins, then you can go to heaven one day. Sound familiar? Folks, heaven is not eternal life. It is not even where you're going to be spending eternity. Heaven is a temporary location because when Jesus returns, those who believe in the Son will spend eternity on a new earth where the throne of God will be forever. Just read your Bible. Revelation. And if we limit eternal life to heaven, those who believe now fail to see something very important. They fail to see the implications for today. And that way, 
we get the message of the gospel wrong. See, the gospel of Jesus is that by believing in the Son and saying yes to the Son, eternal life begins now. Not later, now. Eternal life is something that you possess, hopefully, if the Lord should tarry, and hopefully if you don't perish, that you will possess long before you ever get to heaven. The alternative to, re- the alternative to rejecting the Son for telling yourself no to Jesus, that you don't need Him, the consequences is eternal wrath, not life. That too is not just what happens when one dies. If you reject the Son now, you are an object of God's wrath already, right now. The text actually says, for God's wrath remains on them. That means that being an object of God's wrath is a condition that we are all born with, born into, and it remains with us until we die and then continues eternally if something doesn't change. See, back at the beginning, when God created Adam, he created Adam to be a son. He was an image bearer. He had dominion with God over all the earth. And he had unbroken access to God all the time. But then he sinned. And unfortunately, that's really all most Christians think about that event. But understand this. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they didn't just break a rule when they said no to God. They actually exchanged his God they actually exchanged their God-given image and took on the very nature of their rebellion. Adam and Eve became sin. And as a consequence, their nature, as well as their identity, changed forever from an image bearer of God and the embodiment of God's divine purpose and dominion over creation to a sin bearer, just like the serpent who had deceived them. And then Adam and Eve became the embodiment of God's wrath. And their destiny then became death. And that consequence rooted itself in every part of Adam and Eve's being. And that was passed down to their offspring, even to you and to me. So understand this. When you believe in Jesus, you do not just pray a prayer to go to heaven. You pray a prayer to gain your original identity and nature back. John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. The Gospel of John puts it this way. Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, don't get caught up on all the foreknowledge and predestining stuff and miss the greater intent of God's words here. You were redeemed, saved to become a brother or sister with Jesus. 
And the only way to do that is to stop saying no to allowing Jesus to change your nature. It's all about a change of natures. And changing you from an object of God's wrath to a child of God by nature. A new nature. And eternal life is the product of that change, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 18. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself in Christ. Wow. That's way greater than a prayer. Jesus' whole work in granting you eternal life was so that you can get your original nature and identity back as a child of God. And that's why you have eternal value, eternal worth to God. And that's why Jesus went to the cross for you, not because you're a worthless sinner, but because you were created. God created you to be his image bearer, and he wanted that back. Jesus came, announced, and paid the highest price because you are worth a lot to God. But that's not usually what we're told, is it? We're usually told by ourselves and by others that we're just a bunch of worthless sinners. Sure, unchanged, we are sinners. And we have then on us the wrath of God. But we are far from worthless. What does it say, John 3.16, God so loved what? The world. Not just perfect, righteous people. No, the world. Sure, unchanged, we are sinners, but we are far from worthless. So you know what? It's not good if you believe in Jesus to continue to believe and continue to tell yourself, no, you have no value to God, because you do. You have eternal value to God. You've always been of infinite value to God, and he proved it by sending his son to that cross. Sure, you can ultimately make yourself worthless by continuing in this life as an object of God's wrath and then rejecting Christ as you die. But don't confuse God's wrath with, God, with worthlessness because you will always be worth everything to God. So, if you have rejected Jesus up until now, can I implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God? To believe in the Son that He sent for you? Who died on a cross to show you how much you're worth to Him? If you want that, simply tell Jesus that you choose to believe that He is the Son of God and that you need Him to save you and to give you eternal life, to change your very self. Not just so you can go to heaven, but so that you can live for him now. And again, since 1983, I've lived that life, and I can prove that he is worth it. Sure, something in your heart, though, might be kind of trying to change your mind at this point. Even though I say all these things, something in your heart is drawing you, and that's Jesus. But something about being a Christian might also be intriguing you. But then you're also hearing a big butt in your head. You find yourself saying no to yourself. I know that because I've been where you are. We all have. 
along with Jesus' invitation, you're also hearing that no in your head. No, it's not true. No, God doesn't want you. God doesn't even like you. No, you don't need Jesus. And so you're tempted to shut down any hint of belief in Jesus. Why? Why won't you let yourself believe? Well, what if the people you like and care about ridicule you or reject you? Maybe you don't want to believe because you're afraid of becoming too religious. Especially with all that stuff that you're hearing in the news about Christians and Christian schools and Christian camps. Why would anyone want to be a part of that community of people? You might also say no to Jesus because he might want you to give up certain things that you like doing. Maybe someone who claimed to be a Christian disappointed you or hurt you. I'm sure there are all kinds of reasons for why you wouldn't let yourself believe in Jesus today. I've heard all those reasons too in my own head. And you know what? I know that it boils down to one reason. You're afraid. You're afraid. And those are legitimate things to be afraid of. But the choice is yours, eternal life or wrath. Now what about the Christian? You've crossed the line from rejecting Jesus to believing in Jesus. And you obviously overcame all those fears and you let yourself say yes to believing in Jesus and his eternal life. But there's a limit to how far and how much you'll let yourself believe Jesus for other stuff. I believe in you, Jesus, but... See, there's always this big but in the way, and it's yours. You're either still afraid of all the same stuff that prevented you from believing in Jesus in the first place and saying yes to him. You're afraid of the ridicule. You're afraid of looking too religious. You're afraid of what Jesus will expect you to do to obey You're afraid that maybe God will will want you to go to Africa or something on the mission field or that God would even want you to share the gospel with someone else. Or maybe the big but in the way isn't so much fear. Well, that might be mixed in with it. But the other reason that you might be saying no to allowing yourself to fully believe Jesus is because you're lazy. Oh, pastor, that's kind of hurtful. That wasn't nice. Is it? Or is it true? I saw a t-shirt once that said, lazy is a strong word. Did I not put the, the picture of the t-shirt there? Maybe I didn't. The t-shirt says, lazy is a very strong word. I like to call it selective participation. That makes for a really cute t-shirt, but really what else do we call it? Really? It's, it's almost really true. We read this in the Bible that we're reading today about our relationship with Jesus, about learning to say yes more to Jesus. And at the door, you might even say to me, good word, Pastor. It was a great sermon today. Thank you for that. But then how does this good word work itself out in the week ahead? It's just that it's selective participation. Selective participation in the word. I only choose to participate in the stuff about Christianity that I like. That's safe. That doesn't scare me. It's selective participation 
even when we're Christians. R.C. Sproul, uh, pastor, founder, uh, and chairman of Ligonier's Ministries, uh, professor, author, Bible commentator. I mean, the man has done just about everything, and he said this. Here, then, is the real problem of our negligence. We fail in our duty to God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull or boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. I've often found myself saying no to myself or no to Jesus because I'm either afraid or lazy. And mostly it's the latter that influences the former, to be honest. Folks, there's no other way to explain a no. There's no other way. Especially uh, if, if you reflect back on a previous week's studies and, and you say you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, that if Jesus is greater than my capacity, if Jesus is greater than the labels that are on me, if Jesus is greater than the impossible before me, then surely Jesus must also be greater than the no's I tell myself all the time out of fear and laziness. Right? What does a Christian look like if not these things? What should a Christian look like when life squeezes you? You should look like Christ, right? Because you can and you are a child of God. If you were to squeeze an orange, what would you expect to get? Orange juice. Not apple juice. Orange juice, right? Why is it that when you squeeze a Christian, anything but Christ-likeness comes out sometimes? So what does it take to break through the nose in your Christian experience and really trust Jesus for the next line you've got to cross in becoming more robust, a more obedient follower of Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. What does it take to cross the line and believe in Jesus for eternal life now? Here's how it normally works, okay? You read this in the Bible. Romans 8, chapter 37 to 39. And some of you probably have most of this memorized. In all things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Great truth. Then in our heads we say, no, Jesus, I won't let you make me take that next step because I don't believe that you're really greater than my capacity, like that verse says. Or maybe you read this from Galatians 4. When the, time, the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God has set, sent the Spirit to, of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Great truth. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Similar truth. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Wonderful truths. But then we hear in our heads, no, Jesus, I won't let myself believe what you say about me because I would rather believe the labels that other people put on me. Or maybe we read in our Bible, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For I am weak. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Great truth. But then we hear this voice in our head saying things like, No, Jesus. I won't let myself follow you there because I don't really believe that you're greater than the impossible before me. Folks, you've got to believe that Jesus is greater than the no's you're telling yourself. He is greater than your fear. Is he not? Amen? He is greater than your laziness. Amen? He has saved you so that you can become what he is, the beloved, powerful, faith-filled, faithful child of the living God. Friend, you've got to stop believing or doubting, and you need to believe. You've got to believe that Jesus saves, not to get you to heaven, but to make you his brother and sister. And from my experience, that's a lifelong transformation, isn't it? So get over it and get on with it. Don't give up on it. Stop doubting and believe that he has made you to be his child. But I get it. You're not used to being God's kid. You're not used to God treating you like a son or a daughter. You're not used to having the capacity of the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth in your corner. You're not used to hearing your beloved heavenly father tell you, Oh, my love, I'm not scared of your imperfections or the questions in your head. Please know that you have always been enough for me. I love you, and I am with you always. I hope you're used to hearing that, because that's true. You're more used to, though, probably hearing doubts about your nature and your new identity in Christ and about what capacity you have, about the labels that others give you, about the impossibles before you. I hope you get that ultimately <laughs> you're actually just saying no to Jesus more than you are saying no to yourself. And the only way that I know of to believe more about what God says about you is to be with Jesus more. To get into his word. We have to meditate on this word and stop ignoring it, stop doubting it, and start living it. And as you read, he's going to say things to you and you need to learn to say yes to him. Always. Men, listen. Men, listen. We have a men's Bible study on Thursday nights where we teach men how to be men of God, how to learn how to read the Bible and study the Bible for themselves. 
we believe that every man should be able to teach his own family how to read their Bibles and study the Bible for themselves. And we believe that every man should be able to teach other men how to do the same. And that's why we have a very simple, rapid, and reproducible method in order to help you learn to do that. Wives, listen. If you want your man to be a spiritual leader in the home, and a man of God, and a man of the word, and a man of prayer, and an obedient follower of Jesus, then you got to let him go out on a Thursday night to study the word with us. I mean that. It's imperative if you want faith in your home. I know that nights during the week are busy, but you can, if you can just reserve this one night a week for your man's spiritual development, it will bless your entire household. A man who is not equipped with the word is not equipped for life. Equip him. Let him go. If your kids have soccer that night or whatever, just commit to letting him go and you go in his place. The kid won't be a soccer star anyway. Those kids are all in Europe. <laughs> Remember, we didn't just pray a prayer so that we could go to heaven one day. You have been saved by him, changed by him, given eternal life now by him to become like him. That is our most important obligation. So don't let anything get in the way of that. If we get enough men out, we'll expand it to another night as well, if you wish another night. So eagerly join Christ on this journey of constant transformation in your life and learn to say yes to him. And after this message today, as you walk out that door today, and when you wake up tomorrow morning, I've got your first yes for you. Jesus, you must become greater, and I must become less. Can you say yes to that? Why don't we say it together? Jesus, you must become greater, and I must become less. Jesus must become greater. That's your first yes. Try to get that one down this week. And men, we'll see you Thursday night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, isn't it cool that we get to call him Father? Isn't it cool that when Jesus was asked by his disciples, teach us how John taught his disciples to pray, <laughs> Jesus said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Join me in that. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom. All the power and the glory. Forever and ever. Amen.